This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This podcast is brought to you by Tethered, the makers of the most badass saddle gear that you are able to find. The most frequently asked question that I get since I started saddle hunting is really about uh, comfort. And aside from it being more comfortable to hike in because it's lighter, it's more compact, compact, it's more mobile. Aside from that, the question is always kind of around whether or not I'm comfortable in the tree. And the saddle is extremely comfortable. And what makes it so comfortable is that it's absolutely customizable to fit each person differently. And you don't need to necessarily be a DIY guru to customize the saddle. Simple things like adjusting your tether height in many cases will get you dialed in and kind of provide you that the comfort that you're looking for in the tree. For me, the game changer ultimately was, in, in terms of comfort, was using the Mantis recliner. And if you don't know what the Mantis recliner is, this is a back band that goes around your back. And, and now they have a Gen 2 version that hooks right into your carabiner. And what it does is it provides you extra support in your back for those long all-day sits in November. Uh, this piece is extremely adjustable. And you might be asking, will this interfere with my shot whenever I'm, I'm drawing my bow? And it absolutely does not. The way it's kind of positioned and the way it fits on you, whenever you go to take a shot, when you lean up, it falls to your lower back and kind of gets out of the way of your of your shot sequence. So you can learn more about Tethered and all their gear at tetherednation.com. And be sure to check out their YouTube channel for a few great DIY saddle tips. September is here, which means that hunting seasons are finally officially kicking off, whether you're out west hunting antelope, elk, etc., mule deer, or if you're here in Pennsylvania where the dove and goose season has just opened. And many of us are actually doing a lot of this hunting on public lands, and the backcountry hunters and anglers are are the folks who continue to help us protect our public lands, making sure that they are accessible and free to those of us that want to that want to use those lands. And the important thing to note here is that September is public lands month, and backcountry hunters and anglers are giving away a free public land uh, owner t-shirt with every new and renewing membership on their website. And to renew or or to sign up for the first time, you can head to backcountryhunters.org. That's B-A-C-K-C-A-O-U-N-T-R-Y-H-U-N-T-E-R-S dot O-R-G. After you sign up or renew your membership, be sure to follow uh, the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Pennsylvania chapter on Instagram. And you can follow them by following at BHA underscore PA. One of my favorite parts about hunting season is starting my morning with a cup of coffee. And what better coffee to start your morning with for a hunt than Skull Brew Coffee? Skull Brew Coffee Company donates 10% of their profits back to nonprofit conservation to make sure that we keep wild places wild and that we keep public lands access still accessible for all of us to enjoy. So if you dig coffee and conservation, visit skullbrewcoffee.com and pick up some coffee today and pledge your support of conservation. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you are listening to episode number 137. Today I'm happy to be diving into part one of another DIY report miniseries, this time with known big buck killer, Don Higgins. So stay tuned. 
what is going on out there. Happy Wednesday to all of you. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're feeling fine. The weather seems to finally broke a little bit. Looks like fall is finally kind of finally kind of starting to get here, which is making me a little antsy for uh, for deer season. It's been like, I think it's, uh, I woke up the one morning, I think it was like 55 degrees, heavy dew on the, on the yard. It just kind of has that, uh, it's starting to get that deer hunting, that deer hunting feeling. So um, I'm, I'm getting pretty excited about that. But uh, not a whole, at this time of year, it's like I'm kind of pretty much, I think I mentioned on, you know, one of the last podcasts, like I'm pretty well dialed in and ready to go. I'm spending some time in the saddle. Um, a couple of days a week, you know, sometimes shooting out of it. Sometimes I'll just clip it into a tree in the yard at, at you know, ground level and just sit in it and just kind of get used to it, move around that way. Whenever the, when the, when the day finally comes, um, I'm feeling good and ready to go. Of course, shoot my bow a lot. That's pretty much an everyday occurrence. Um, at this point, I'm not, I won't say that I'm necessarily working on tweaking anything major. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm basically going out in the yard and I'll basically say, Hey, you know, I'm going to shoot nine arrows maybe, you know, and that's, and that's it. I'm going to try to make those nine arrows, the best arrows I can make them. Some days I only have a chance to shoot three and I try to make those three, the best arrows I can possibly make them. Um, you know, just trying to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go and, and dialed in and feeling good for the, uh, for the hunting season. I don't remember if in the last podcast, I'm trying to remember if I had mentioned, you know, I did do a camera check and if I'm, if I'm rehashing this, sorry, but I'll make it really brief. I do have a couple good deer that I found, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, and I think, um, at least two of them, I think, are really huntable, um, and so that's uh, so that's good news. I did put a, a video out on YouTube of some of the camera checking that I've that I've done recently. Hopefully, I'll have another one that's coming soon, um, which will detail a little bit more of a couple of the parcels of public land that I've been checking out and some of the deer that I have on that on those uh, specific properties. The bummer is, I think I had mentioned and and I mentioned this in the the YouTube video that I released. Um, you know, I, I've had a couple mishaps with. Uh, Oh man, I guess I'll just call it laziness. I, I, I rolled the dice on some, on some, uh, batteries that I thought had enough juice in them, but they did not. And I got kind of, got kind of screwed on that. And then also on some just placement of my camera in the swamp. It just, I've, I've gotten a lot of false uh, triggers in there based on the sensitivity level that I had set. And then also where I was placing them. So I've been kind of playing hell with that, uh, trying to get that figured out. But I, as a, as of this podcast, I actually will be, uh, going back out into the timber into the swamp because I'm trying to stay out of there as much as I can, which seems counterintuitive because I'm going back in there. But I have a render an Exodus render cell camera that I want to get in there because then it'll allow me just to kind of stay out and understand, um, when the deer are going to be, uh, huntable in that area. Cause a lot of what happened last year was, as I was, you know, I was getting Intel from my cameras, but I was checking them as I was going in. And so the Intel wasn't necessarily timely. And I do try to hunt year yearly patterns, but I don't, I still don't have a lot of info on this, property in terms of how they and how in terms of how they use it i know it turns into a ghost town later in the year um, but i know that there's good deer in there and i know that they follow uh, you know a, a summer pattern to a degree and so i'm trying to figure them out just a little bit this year i was my plan was to get the camera in there earlier um and i did and i didn't plan to have the battery issues and stuff that i'd had so i really don't know much more about that piece than i knew last year um you know at the end of the season and so that's what i'm hoping the cell camera can kind of help me with is to see if there's anything that's huntable um, in there. That way I know where I need to be spending my uh, spending my time this year. So that's that's kind of what the plan is, uh, is, is for today. Beyond that, the only other thing that I'm kind of considering right now is as I, you know, got some of this intel on one of these other public pieces and have, you know, a handful of good deer, I want to say in the, in one spot, and I just, I found a really good little terrain feature that's a pinch, you know, along a ditch and some, it's just really thick and nasty. Um, I'm, I have probably three shooters um, and then one that's borderline, which I would pass this year because he's just he's a good looking deer and he, he's a young deer. Um, and I think he'd be really nice deer if he would go another year or so. And that and there's a couple deer in there that I can that I can hunt. So it's not as though I'm I'm, I'm hurting for a, a deer on, on that piece, particularly to try to go after. So uh, but at least three really good uh, looking shooters and uh and and one up and comer so the the thing with this particular area though is is that i i kind of figured out and i won't say i figured out but i have an idea of what wind is going to work the best and it actually works pretty well for me for access and so forth for this particular location but you know the one place where i kind of failed was i picked out a tree that i really really liked and it's it, it is a killing tree no doubt but they're working probably slightly the wrong wind to use that tree and unfortunately, whenever I looked at that spot, I kind of, 
I didn't take into consideration, this is a, a bad on my part, I didn't take into consideration all the kind of possible wind options I was going to have to possibly hunt in that area. Um, so I'm not 100% sure for this particular wind where I would set up, um, which is kind of a bummer. So if my memory serves and what I had seen while I was scouting through there, walking in there and, and checking cameras and stuff like that, the one area that I had picked out of the tree, the group of trees that I'd picked, and this is like a really tight area where you're not going to probably take more, a, a longer shot than maybe 12 to 15 yards. Um, so there's not like, there's a lot of trees in there to begin with to, to choose from. So what I'm really kind of considering, especially for the, the North wind that I think that I'm going to need to hunt, uh, this particular deer or this particular group of deer, um, in this terrain feature, I'm really considering going with a ghillie suit because I think with that North wind, I think if I have to hunt the opposite side of that, um, pinch point or funnel, um, I don't know that there's going to be a tree in there for me to get into. Um, and I think hunting it from the ground might be the best option. And just in full disclosure, I haven't hunted from the ground in, in, in many, many years. Um, it's something I've kind of been wanting to do and just haven't really had a reason to, cause most of my setups have always kind of worked well to be able to be off the ground. Um, but this is one that's kind of lending itself where it might make the most sense for me to hunt from the ground. So I might get a ghillie suit, at least a jacket. And, uh, and try my hand at that this year. You know, I think the convenient thing about, you know, saddle hunting, you know, not the harp on the saddle bit again, but is that I can always wear that in and carry my, my modded sticks that are short and wear, wear the ghillie suit in and then make a decision. Once I get in there, if there's a good setup for me to get into a tree, I can get into a tree. If there's not, I didn't really carry a whole lot in to begin with. So I can stay on the ground and hunt from the ground. And it's not as though I've got, you know, a, a big ass tree stand that I'm lugging around that I got to try to stow away while I'm, while I'm trying to hunt. So, so the, that's the positive, another positive to put in your back pocket, uh, you know, chalk that up for a, a, a win in the column of, uh, of saddle hunting. But so that's kind of my plan right now. Um, you know, I got a couple, couple good options, I feel like, and, uh, the season for me is fast approaching opens on the 21st. Um, and you know, we, we can talk about this later at some point, but, um, you know, I, it's interesting cause you know, a lot of folks will talk about hunting October and they're only wanting to hunt, you know, the evenings in October. And I kind of fell victim to that too, for, for a lot of years. And just this, this year, particularly the deer that I'm seeing that are, that seem to be killable as of right now. And some of this has to do with the fact that, you know, where I live in Pennsylvania opens earlier than, you know, than much of the state, but this deer particularly is giving me an opportunity in the morning. Um, he's passing where I, where I need to be set up with, uh, with shooting light, um, which tells me I'm, I'm probably really close to his bed, which I didn't anticipate. I'd anticipated that I was probably close to, to his bed in general. Um, but it seems that the, what I'm seeing on trail camera is kind of, uh, confirming that for me. Um, so I think a morning hunt in this piece, particularly in October, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, late September here into early October, as long as, you know, what I'm watching is kind of playing out and staying true, I think is, might be a, the best bet to try to, to try to kill him. Um, I think for the evening, the access would be really, really hard. Um, in, in, in this particular setup, I think you could hunt other parts of this property, um, you know, in a, in an evening kind of scenario, but I will say, you know, I had several, I was watching kind of several areas of this and scouted pretty much the entire thing, um, over the course of the winter. And, um, you know, I guess what we'll say is that not all terrain features and parts of a parcel are created equal. Um, and so with that, you know, I would, uh, this one area would probably be the only area of this property that I would hunt, um, for, for a multitude of reasons. And I won't get into those right, right now. Maybe we'll have a little bit of a, uh, uh, a debriefing as we get into the season, as I, as I've hunted it a couple of times and, and have a little bit better perspective, but that's kind of the game plan for me. You know, I'm just kind of, I'm going to hang this last cell cam. That way I have some, you know, real time data, uh, in, in the swamp. And then I'm just going to kind of sit and relax here for two more weekends or one more weekend and then get ready to get after it. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, John and I have a goals, uh, podcast that'll be coming out that we'll talk about what our plans are and stuff for the, our goals, which will happen, uh, uh, next week. But, um, you know, I'm hoping that, uh, what I'm seeing on camera will allow me to have some success early this year. At least that's my hope. And I think that's all of our hopes as we go into, as we go into any season. So, with that, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and cut this uh, this upfront uh, off and get to the matter at hand. I have a really cool show today uh, lined up. Super excited to have Don Higgins back on. Anytime you can talk to Don, I mean, Don is just, um, 
is just great at, at, at killing big deer. <laughs> you know, he's, he's got a couple, more than a couple 200-inch deer. Um, he manages to get on good deer every every year, it seems like, and is watching good deer. Uh, he's got pretty high standards, so I won't say that he, he tags one every year. I don't think he tagged one last year um, because he's really looking for the mature of the, the, the most mature deer you can possibly you can possibly hunt. And so with this DIY report, what, what I wanted to do was really kind of dive into, you know, how Don approaches a season, you know, everything from what he's doing in postseason, you know, to scout, to get ready, what he's doing during the course of, you know, the preseason, whether it's spring and summer, you know, to to continue to get ready for the season, what he's doing during the season, you know, how he's, I mean, I think the one thing that I've learned in the course of doing this podcast is that when you meet guys who consistently have success and are consistently on mature deer and hunt mature deer with success, you know, they leave no stone unturned and they're hyper, hyper detail oriented. And that doesn't just mean in their scouting. It doesn't just mean like in the preseason watching trail cameras and stuff like that. <clears throat> it goes on into the season. And a lot of these guys, it's not just, you know, cataloging mentally what you're seeing. I mean, a lot of these guys are keeping journals and notes as the season is going on stands, on wind directions for specific stands, on what they're seeing in deer behavior. I mean, it is almost like a full-time job. And that is the one thing that I've consistently seen with guys who consistently kill good deer, be it private land, be it, be it public land, be it leased land, private access, whatever type of land that is. To me, that's always kind of been the common denominator between all of them. And I think you'll see that with Don here as well, as we kind of start to go through and chronicling what he does throughout the course of the uh, of, a, of a deer season, preseason, etc. So with that, today what we're talking about is really what we what he's doing during postseason. Now I know this is a little bit, <clears throat> you know, maybe not as relevant uh, today as we're getting ready to walk into the hunting season right now, but I wanted to give the broad perspective of what his process is in totality because I think, you know, this podcast today specifically may not help you in October this year, but Whenever postseason rolls around after this season, this is something that I think you will find valuable and useful as you start to go into your postseason prep uh, after this season. And we will certainly get to what he's doing uh, during this time of year and during the hunting season. So with that, we'll go ahead and get cracking. One last thing to note is that John did join us for this podcast, but he had some uh, he had some car issues that he had to drop off partway through. So uh, he'll be on for just a moment and then it'll just be Don and I taking it from there. So with that, I hope you guys enjoy it. And as always, thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the truth from the stand deer hunting podcast. And today we're rolling into another DIY report mini series. And this one, I am joined by my, 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 my two buddies, uh, one, the, the man, the myth, the legend, Johnny Utah Mulligan. Hailing from Iowa. And our other guest today is none other than Big Buck Killer, Mr. Don Higgins. How are you, sir? Good. How are you guys? Good, man. You, uh, you, there's a, no, rest for, no rest for the weary for you, man. You just hopped off a plane straight from Texas and jumping <laughs> right on a podcast. So I appreciate you not even getting any shut-eye in between. Yeah, I've been in the house all of about five minutes just to walk in the door. I've been in Texas for the last four or five days. It's been a pretty busy summer for me. Yeah, I guess so. It's uh, the white toe woods rest for rest for no one. I guess is the is the is the moral of that story. Um, so uh-huh. I I wanted to ask you know how how has your off season been so far? I know I, I ran into you at uh, at ATA. I don't know if you can even call your what you've had an off season because I know you've been uh, pretty busy with your consulting work, and then I know you've been doing a bunch of a bunch of seminars here too, putting on a run here during the the late part of the summer. So how's uh how's uh, the summer and the off season been treating you so far? Well, it seems like the last couple of years, uh, you know, I shot Smokey and Trump in 2017 and things just kind of exploded for me after that. And there really is no off season anymore. And it, uh, my off season, if you will, is about, uh, mid September through mid December. So, you know, right in the middle of hunting season is my off season as far as work goes. Right. But, uh, I'm doing something with white tails basically 365 days a year. Yeah. That's good. That's good. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's always good when you can combine your work and your passions, right? Yeah. I mean, it's taken decades to get here and, uh, I know there's a lot of young guys, um, putting in the effort now trying to, to get to the position where they can make a living in the hunting industry, especially with whitetails. But, uh, 
it's only been in the past couple of years that I've finally been able to make 100% of my living from the whitetail hunting industry. Yeah. I mean, and you've been at it for, and you've been at it for a long time and you've been, you know, a, you know, a, a, a great deer hunter, a, a, an awesome deer hunter, you know, putting down big deer for, for a lot of years. So it just goes to show, you know, putting in the dedication and, um, you know, having the work ethic and just kind of continuing to power through. And I think more than anything, it just proves that if you don't have a passion for it and you're in it for the wrong reasons, I don't know that you'll, that you'll make it. Cause this uh, industry seems to weed those folks out pretty quick. Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, this fall will actually mark the 40th anniversary of my first buck or my first deer kill. Wow. Uh, back in 1979, November 16th, 1979, I shot my first deer. And, uh, you know, on that morning, I, I said it many times, my whole life changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, God lit a fire in my heart for big white tails. It just grows hotter every year. And and this will be the 40th year um, since I shot that first deer. That's crazy. I mean, I was, Don, I was, I was not quite a year and a half old when you shot your first deer. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a, a lot of guys listening to this podcast that probably weren't even born yet when I shot that first deer. I know, right? Well, that's it means you're just uh, our, our elder statesman, and, and we should be paying attention to what you're saying because you've been there, you've done that. And uh, that's the one thing I always appreciate about you is you're always willing to share information and, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, divulge every, you know, what you've learned over the course of the years. And, you know, and we're all, you know, we're all better for it and, and appreciative of it. But in the spirit of that, you know, I, I want to tee up this first question, you know, so, so what we're doing here, you know, for the DIY report, you know, this mini series is, it's really about big buck preparation um, and wanting to kind of dive into the mind of, 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 you know, into your mind, Don, and get a sense of what you're doing at the different times of the year to kind of prepare to try to get on a mature deer and then ultimately, you know, kill a mature deer. You know, but before we jump uh-huh. into the specifics around, you know, around late season, which is where we'll start, uh, or just that directly, you know, postseason, you know, right after the hunting season, um, I wanted to get a sense from you with your consulting work that you're doing, you know, you know, how much does seeing different parcels of ground during the course of the planning for client properties and so forth, how much has that impacted your own hunting and how much do you think it's actually helped you in seeing things differently? Well, at this point in, in my hunting career, if you will, probably not a whole lot mm-hmm. because, uh, like I said, this is my 40th year actually i've been hunting longer than that because i didn't kill a deer to my third season so i've I've been hunting over 40 years and uh the the thing that 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 the consulting really does is just uh it kind of shows me how adaptable the whitetail is because every property is different you know last spring i was in nine different states over 50 properties and uh you know it's there's a big difference from a property out in Kansas, for example, compared to one in Michigan, compared to one in Kentucky. And, uh, you know, the, the whitetail is just amazing because they adapt to whatever stored at them and, and still survive and thrive. Mm-hmm. So what do you think, you know, what's the one thing that, you know, maybe has taken you aback over the course of the years that you noticed as far as like how they adapt that you were just like, that you kind of marveled at? What was, is, is there one thing that kind of stood out to you? Just like, man, I can't believe they are able to survive in this or that they've changed the way that they're doing, you know, the way they're using the wind in this particular, you know, terrain feature or whatever, that just something that you thought was out of the ordinary that just kind of made you, you know, kind of stand in awe of them essentially. Well, I suppose it's probably in the last couple of years, it seems like I've done a lot more consulting work in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And Michigan is a pretty unique state. I mean, there's a lot of, of deer hunters in Michigan, and they're diehards. So they're they're almost a different breed from the rest of the deer hunters that I deal with. And you know, like I've been on some smaller properties in Michigan where it seemed like there was almost as many stands and blinds on the property as there was trees. Right. You know, everywhere you turn, there's a stand, and it's like, you know, how do these deer even survive that kind of hunting pressure? And uh, you know, my hat's off to those Michigan guys because they're hunting some of the most pressured deer on earth. But yet, even so, the deer just seem to thrive there in spite of all the pressure that's put on them. So uh, getting to see that on numerous properties over the past couple of years has been kind of an eye-opener for me. Yeah, I know. You know, I have some buddies in Michigan. I'm, 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 you know, I'm in Pennsylvania, of course, which has some pretty decent hunting pressure. And it's just it's one of those things when you do see a big deer – I know whenever I get a big deer on camera, if I see one when I'm in the timber, you're always just kind of, 
you know, at least I do. I kind of stop and take pause. I'm just like, man, I, I don't know how he made it. You know, you, it's to see a four and a half year old deer in Pennsylvania is, is kind of a sight to be seen. You know, if I'm being, if I'm being right. honest, I can probably only say honestly for a hundred percent certainty. I know that I've only ever seen for sure one on the hoof, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a mature buck, um, you know, and that's, you know, they're not around every corner here in, in, in PA or Michigan for that, for that matter. But, um, you know, whenever you're, when you're doing your consulting work, um, you know, I know you're of course addressing habitat things and, and stand placements and, and stuff like that. And the things that people I think would usually, you know, think about whenever you're thinking about, um, having a consultant come out and look at, look at your whitetail property. Um, but do you also talk to them about the different times of the year and how, how they might want to approach it based on what their, what, how their property is set up and what all kind of goes into that? Yeah, I mean, I, I detail out a plan exactly what I would do if I owned the property. But, uh, you know, it's really easy to increase the number of deer staying on a property um, and even increasing the number of big deer staying on a property. It's fairly simple. There's a lot of information on the Internet, although I don't agree with all of it. There's some good information out there. But, you know, the real key, I think, is, is how you – set that property up because uh getting deer to stay on a property or increasing the number of deer or the quality of the habitat is fine but it does you no good to do that if you can't kill the big ones once they're there right so you know laying out that property so that you can kill the biggest buck on it year after year after year uh, i think is the key that uh you know why most of the clients that i have anyway are, are hiring me mm-hmm Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. And so I guess with that, are you, it's a lot of times, you know, I would guess at least you're focusing on what are those improvements that are going to be most beneficial around that, you know, you know, fall hunting period time versus, you know, summer or late season or, or, or what have you. Cause I imagine a lot of folks, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there probably is a lot of folks that are working with like back forties and stuff like that, that might be on the, they're not dealing with a thousand acre tract of land, you know what I mean? They're in, they may not be able to guarantee that that buck lives hundred percent of the time on that property. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I would say probably my average client has 80 to a hundred acres and I've done a lot of 40 acre properties mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, but the key is, and I tell all my clients this, if you want to kill big bucks consistently, you absolutely have got to hunt them on the properties where they spend their daylight hours where they're bedding. Mm-hmm. If you're just one property off from where they're bedding, I think your odds of killing that buck are about 10% what they are if you would be hunting on the same property where they bed. So the first thing we want to do is we want to create a situation where that buck feels safe bedding on a client's property. Mm -hmm. But then we want to design that property in such a way so that once we get that buck bedded there, then we can kill him. It does no good for him to be in a sanctuary and stay there all day and uh, you know, when it gets dark, walk out onto the neighbor or something. We need the property set up in such a way that once he's there, he can be killed. Right. It kind of encourages daylight movement and, and so forth. Feeling safe has all the all the essentials that he needs to survive and feel safe. So he's more apt to get up. Is what your is you know is is the goal there? Right. And I'm not thinking that those deer are going to get up, especially you go into a heavily hunted region, uh, Michigan or any other state. You know where. Uh, the, the property or the area has experienced heavy hunting pressure. Uh, a buck that's lived very long and survived to maturity, he's not sticking his head out of the brush <laughs> most of the time when the sun's up anyway. So right. what what we're thinking of is just, you know, get him to stand on his feet and move a very short distance from where he bedded. And I think that's a big misconception when you get on the Internet. You know, there's these other consultants that are throwing out these elaborate plans and I call it the big buck merry-go-round where he gets out of his bed and he waltzes over and checks out this plot and walks behind the screening cover and pops his head out and looks into the other plot and then marches through the doe bedding area and 
and it's almost like a big buck merry-go-round and, and i just it, it sounds good on paper i guess but in the real world it rarely works and you know, we want a deer we want a buck to to bed on a property feel safe bed there and, and we just want to set it up so that when he does stand up before dark and he and most days he's not going to but on those days when he does he's going to probably move in a direction and under a situation where we can take advantage and get him killed. Right. So I think with that, I think it's good to transition into our first, you know, topic of, you know, uh, big buck preparations here, you know, and, you know, so the, the scenario here is essentially, you know, hunting season has just ended, you know, late season's over, uh, archery season's over. And, you know, we're all kind of, well, if you're me, you're licking your wounds from the past season, <laughs> from taking your lickings. Uh, if, if if you're other folks, maybe you're taking, you know, taking pictures and celebrating a little bit. But so the season has ended. Um, maybe, you know, you filled a tag, maybe you didn't. You know, what are you doing immediately after your hunting season is over to start to get a jump on preparations for the following year? Well, actually, I'm always preparing for next year. And probably the attention to detail is what separates me from the average hunter, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, uh, because when, during hunting season, when I sit in a stand, I'm taking notes. If whatever I need to do to make that stand the very best it can be. And I used to actually carry a pad of paper and a pen and a Ziploc baggie in my pack and I would write notes. At, but, uh, Today, I'll use my iPhone, I'll take notes, and I'll go home, and I'll transfer them onto a, a document on my computer. So at the when season ends, you know, I've got a list of, of work that I need to do during the off-season. And, you know, I'll have each stand by name, and then under that stand name, I'll have the list of things that I, I need to do at that stand to make it the best it can be. You know, maybe I need to trim a branch or drop a tree over a trail that's just out of range or cut a hole in a fence or whatever. But uh, my time is uh, so uh, critical and crucial to me at that time of the year. I mean, I just don't have spare time because I'm doing the consulting work. So, you know, I'll, I'll refer back to that list, you know, and whatever stand I'm going to, to work on that day. You know, I know every piece of equipment, whether a chainsaw or whatever, that I need to take with me and what I need to do. And I'll even make that list on my phone, on my iPhone. And uh, once I get to the stand, you know, I'll check them off as I do. I mean, clear the branch to the southeast of the stand and cut a hole in the fence. Just whatever needs to be done, um, I've got everything with me to get it done in one trip. And uh, then I'm ready for next season. Right. I think... I think I read, I think you might've wrote a blog article actually about the, about details. And that's the one place where I feel like is, um, you know, I kind of try to make a, a goal for each season, something I want to get better at, you know, and I do it during the off season. So, you know, a lot of times it's shooting my bow and being more handy with that. And, you know, this year it was getting out and scouting more public ground and getting more, more pieces. So I have more opportunity to find the type of deer I want to, I want to hunt and I want to kill. And, so I was able to do that, and and then you know this is one of those things that consistently I hear over and over again from guys that are that are successful at, at, at killing big deer is exactly what you said, is keeping detailed notes around the locations that they're hunting. You know when they see deer, what direction are they coming from? What direction is the wind coming from? And you're getting down to the details of like how do I even sweeten that spot to make it to make it even better, right? So it goes beyond the deer and the weather and all those things. It's it's down to like the tactical stuff of like these are the things and the upgrades i need to make for next year right yeah i try to take good stands and make a good stand a great stand mm-hmm. i, I want to and i'll say the best time to, to do that is that you're sitting there hunting mm-hmm. you, you just think about what what can i do to make this spot even better than it already is right and it might be clearing up a food plot next to it or you know it may be blocking off a trail that's just out of range or but I just sit there and I study the situation and what can I do to make this the very best it can possibly be? And then I come in on the off season, I get it done. Right. So, you know, during the, during the winter, right after the, uh, the, the season, you know, are you, do you get out and do a lot of sky? I mean, I know you have a, a pretty tight schedule and, and, and so forth, but do you prioritize getting out and, and, and walking your properties, doing some scouting, 
just kind of reaffirming where you think the sign should be and, 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 you know, maybe doing a little shed hunting. Well, years ago I did a lot of that. Um, anymore, I, I feel like, especially the properties I'm hunting, I'm not hunting big properties. And you know, that's probably a misconception that a lot of people have about me. They think I've got the big manicured properties and leases and everything else. You know, the interesting thing is three of my four biggest bucks were not killed on properties that I own or lease. They were killed on properties where I just knock on doors for permission. Hmm. And uh, most of those are smaller properties. Most of them are, are overlooked by other hunters. It might be just a fence row out in the middle of nowhere or something like that. So, you know, the main thing I'm trying to do is is get away from other hunters, get my stands ready way ahead of season, but by the time things green up in the spring, I, I want all of my stands ready to go. Mm-hmm. Like right now, you know, a lot of guys are getting their stands ready, and you see it on Facebook or wherever that you know guys are going out hanging their stands or whatever. Mine, mine's been in the in the woods for about four or five months now. They're they're set. They're ready. Right. And I think I think that's a huge thing because these guys are going out and they're alerting the deer. They're leaving scent, whether if they think they are or not, they're disturbing the woods and. You know, I want that disturbance as much ahead of the season as possible. So I'm doing it in the, in the late winter, right after season closes. I'm getting my stands ready for the following season. Right, John. Did you have a? Do you have a question you want to jump in with? <clears throat> yeah. So my question for Don is on when you're planning out and you're thinking about where you want to have stands for the following season or where you want to have blinds and things like that. How many stands, or or do you keep? one or two hang-on stands and a set of sticks on standby uh, for some change or something you observe during the season where you might want to make a change without necessarily tearing down a set. You just want to go in fresh and hang a new set for a kind of hang-and-hunt surprise attack. Yeah, I do some of that. I mean, every season uh, I'm hanging some stands during season. Um, It doesn't happen a whole lot. To be honest, uh, you know, most of the time, I mean, it, you can be successful doing it, no doubt about it. But uh, I, I want the element of surprise on my side. I don't want to slip in one day and hang a stand and, you know, cause some disturbance. Uh, I think the, uh, you know, the, the sneakier you are, the better your odds for success. Uh, there's, I'm sure that I've bumped a lot of bucks putting stands up during the season and and ruined my chances. The spot I picked may have been perfect, but just the disturbance I made hanging that stand might be enough to, to bump that buck and make him change his pattern just a little bit. Gotcha. Nice. So you you try to keep that to a try to keep that to a minimum. It's it, it's 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 the old the old theory of your first set, your best set, kind of is what you're wanting to operate under as mu- as much as you possibly can, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's perfect. Yeah. Um, so whenever you, I want to shift gears here and talk just a little bit about, you know, habitat, you know, and, and when you're thinking about, you know, your post season right after hunting season and you start, you got your notepad that you've taken some notes and, and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, what are, I guess, some of the, what, what are the areas that you start with, with habitat updates say on a parcel that you, that you lease or own that you can, that you can make some, some changes to. And I, I understand that you would likely have a, you know, a multi-year plan that you're working towards something, but you know, what are some of the key things that you like to take care of in, in the, in the winter months regarding habitat? Well, the bedding cover, first of all, um, like I said earlier, if a buck's not bedding on the property you're hunting, your odds of killing him are 10% of what they are if he is. So, uh, on my own property, for example, you know, each winter I'm getting in there with a chainsaw and, and I'm enhancing part of that through, uh, you know, cutting trees that are of species or that, that have no wildlife benefit, or maybe they have poor branch structure, so they're never going to have timber value. Um, I'm, I'm just trying to always have some thick, some new thick cover on my property. And the best way to do that is with a chainsaw. Mm-hmm. So I'll do that in the winter um, just to make sure that there's always quality bedding cover. And then I'm also looking at food sources and what what can I do to – are my food pots where they need to be? And at this stage of the game, they are. But, you know, earlier, you know, 15, 20 years ago when I was starting on this property, there's 
there were situations where I, I would I had planted trees and I went in and decided I needed a food pot there, so I was cutting down trees I'd actually planted, and uh, vice versa. I went into food plots and that I'd cleared and turned around and replanted them to trees because that was the wrong spot. And, you know, I think that's the big thing when it comes to hiring a, a, a consultant. What are you gaining? Well, you're gaining a, a bunch of years on the learning curve. Right. Instead of taking 10 years to get to a certain point, maybe you can do it in three. Right. And uh, so that's the kind of things that I'm doing. Nice. And so when you're talking about bedding cover, do you have like a – do you have like a rough idea or, you know, when you walk into a property that you like to have, you know, 20%, 25% of a property in, in, in bedding cover, or do you just kind of let the, let that each parcel kind of speak to you as far as like how much should be dedicated to what type of resources? Well, I like to have as much bedding cover as possible, but every property is different. So, you know, it, it does, you no good to, like stick your bedding cover back in the back corner of the property and have your neighbor sitting on two sides of it. <laughs> right. Um, He'd like you. So I mean, <laughs> it's got to be laid out with a plan. There, there really is no hard and fast rule. It's just, um, you know, like some properties I go on, there may be 50% of the property is tillable acreage. It's farmed. Mm-hmm. And so we're working, you know, with, with only half of the acreage and cover. Um, there's really just so many variables. There is no percentage, really. Right, right. Gotcha. So you know, as we're here in the in the in the post season, you know, I, I've I've heard you talk a little bit about cameras. I think the last time you were on, we talked just a little bit about cameras. But are you are you one of these fellows who likes to kind of leave cameras out during the course of the entire year, just so you can kind of inventory who's made it through, and you know, any any new bucks that might show up late season, you know, or post season before they drop their antlers that maybe you just didn't see earlier in the year or, you know, it, it, do you have a strategy for that during the postseason, or do you kind of pull them out and, and, and wait till, uh, wait till they start growing again? No, I leave them out until about mid March when most of the bucks have shed antlers. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, a lot of the times I'll go get those cameras on shed antler hunts. Okay. Uh, it's a perfect opportunity to combine two projects at once, look for antlers and grab those cameras. Right. Then I'll put them back out about the first of July, but right. you know that's kind of my way of assessing what bucks have survived. I mean, by the time season ends in mid January to mid March, if there's a buck on a property, you should be able to get his picture. So right. it gives you a real good handle on which bucks have survived and should be around for the next season. Right. You know, is there during that time of year? You know, right after the the season's kind of ended. You know, have you found anything during that time of year, particularly that you find that you end up finding the best intel. So I guess as an example, you know, this time of year, you know, right after hunting season, there's a long lead time to the next hunting season comes up, you know, so maybe that's a good time to start walking through your bedding areas that you usually would stay out of typically. So you can kind of go in and see, you know, is the sign laid down where you thought it should be laid down, you know, and, and just kind of start checking out those sanctuary quote unquote areas, or is there something else that you kind of try to prioritize or want to learn during that time of the year? Well, I, I do make about one trek a year through each sanctuary, and I usually try to do that when I'm gathering up the trail cameras and doing the shed antler hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, um, you know, a big buck's number one desire is freedom of human intrusion, seclusion. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if you're stomping through his bedroom in March or November. He don't like it. Right. So, you know, I'll do it once in the spring on a shed antler hunt, and then I stay out. I'm not in there in the fall. I'm not in there the rest of the summer or anything else. So, um, you know, there's really nothing that I'm – it's kind of like, a, you know, I've advanced to a point where I, I can look at a property and pretty much know where I need to be to kill the deer. Right. Any deer living there. It's just a matter of – at this point in the game, it's – it's a matter of, is there a buck there that I want to shoot? Right. Um, I spend more time covering lots and lots of ground with trail cameras, trying to find a giant to hunt right. than I do actually hunting them. Because once I've, I've found them and I've got permission where I need to be, then it's usually a matter of getting those stands ready in the, you know, late winter months, right. Staying away. And then when it's time to, to hunt get in there and get it done. Right. And do you, 
I guess have you have you ever located I guess one that you that popped up on you in in the winter that you found on a you know a trail camera check whenever you're when you're pulling your cameras where you're like all right there's a there's a dandy that's going to be the guy the guy on my list or you or do you typically locating these deer at at other other times of the year aside from you know directly postseason. Uh, by the time postseason rolls around, I I pretty much know every buck on every farm I've got permission to hunt. It's just a matter of determining which one survives. Right, right. Um, just confirming with a photo that they're still alive. Right. And uh, I can't recall a single instance when I had a mature buck that I wanted to target show up in the late season that wasn't there before. Right. And so with your cameras and you're really, you're really playing kind of the long game than with your cameras, right? Over the court, like you're playing annual, annual data versus, you know, year to year data, right? On a deer. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, um, that's the thing. By the time I'm ready to shoot a buck, an individual buck, I've probably been watching him for a minimum of two years, if not three or four, in some cases, five, six years. Um, Trump, for example, I had, he was seven and a half when I shot him and I had pictures of him every year since he was two and a half. Um, you just never know which of those bucks that you're watching is going to explode and be a giant. So, you know, I've got trail cameras of dozens and dozens of bucks each year that I'm keeping an eye on and, some of them get shot and some of them never amount to much and occasionally one will explode and be a giant. Right. So, you know, I'm going to, I know, you know, it's uh it's one of those things. It's funny when I, when I get a chance to talk to you on the podcast or whenever I run into you, you know, in person at a show, um, you know, it's, uh, it, you know, and a couple other buddies that I have who are, who are really good accomplished deer hunters. It's uh, they know where the deer are at before just looking at a property. Right. And I'm just, I'm one of those guys who's not there yet. Right. And I think there's a lot of guys out there that aren't there yet. So for those of us that maybe haven't quite hit that, that point yet, if you were to give a piece of advice for just postseason scouting, so right after the, right after hunting season's over, you know, what would your one piece of advice be or what would you suggest they do during the postseason if they were going to do, you know, focus on one thing to try to get better for the next year during that time of the year? Well, if you want to kill the, the biggest, oldest bucks out there, you, you got to change the way you play the game. And I, I think most deer hunters, they get hung up on sign. They, they want to see sign. They want to see sign in front of where they put their stand. But mature bucks, when, when I'm looking for stand locations, I'm, I'm basing it on terrain and wind. You know, the, the terrain tells me where my stand needs to be, where, where that buck is likely to travel through. Because a lot of times... They don't come through on a beat-down path, um, but terrain will funnel them through certain locations. So uh, the terrain is telling me where to put my stand in the, the wind direction. He's not going to come through those spots when the wind's wrong. Mm-hmm. So you got to kind of combine the two, and the terrain's telling you when, where to put your stand, and the wind direction is telling you when to hunt there. Right. Now, And it's really hard to explain, but... As you see it a couple times, you know, I've said it before, it's like each mature buck you kill gets a little bit easier than the one before, a little bit easier. And then when you reach a certain point, it's almost like you can look at a piece of property and know, even though there's not sign there, there may not even be a single rib there. It might just look like, you know, woods with no deer sign whatsoever. But when you see it, it's like the light goes off. There's where I need to be. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny you say that because I was reading a – I've been, I was reading this book in, cause that's one of the things, again, we were talking about just trying to get better. You were talking about details earlier. And so one of the details I was trying to get on this year more so is just, I wanted to be more confident in my topo reading. You know, it's like, I can look at a map, I can read it and I can figure out some terrain features and stuff like that. But I wanted to start to be able to do exactly what you were kind of talking about and understanding, all right, this terrain feature here, and this is how the wind's going to play with it. And this is, you know, the, the wind that's probably going to be the most, you know, uh, huntable wind opportunity, right? Um, but the interesting thing that you just said, which, you know, didn't dawn on me until I was reading this, you know, reading this book and then talking to other guys like, you know, like yourself was just a lot of times when they're looking at terrain features, they're not the terrain features that they're hunting don't even have a sign in them. Like they would, they're vacant of sign. And right. the, the one thing that, that they were mentioning, and I'd be curious to get your perspective on this 
is they'll find sign a little ways away from the terrain feature. So they're looking for sign that is around the terrain feature, but they're looking for it as like a, as, as almost like a light pull to say, Hey, there's big deer activity here and they're going to have to use this terrain feature if they're going to go to, you know, the area where you think there's doe bedding or where there's, you know, buck bedding or whatever the case might be. So versus hunting the sign, hunting the terrain feature nearest, nearest the good sign, I guess is what their approach was. What do you, is that something that you kind of subscribe to as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you want to see sign on the property. You just don't have to have it right in front of your stand. Right. And I think that's where a lot of deer hunters mess up. They want to see a beat down path and giant roads right in front of every stand they put up. Right. And uh, a lot of that signs made at night. Um, and when those bucks come through, a lot of times they're not on the beat down path. Right. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, I think that that's for this particular segment. I think that that's the last, uh, a last question. I think we covered at least, you know, in part what you like to, you know, how you like to approach the, uh, the off season. So we'll, uh, we'll shut this one down and, uh, get ready for part number two. Sound good? Yeah, sounds great. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank Don for joining. Be sure to check out Higgins Outdoors, his website, and then also Real World Wildlife Products. That is where you can find all his seed products, mineral, etc. Don also has a podcast that's starting this fall, so I'd definitely be on the lookout for that because you're definitely going to want to check it out. If you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave the Truth From The Stand podcast a five-star rating, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done that yet. And one quick thing before I get out of here is if you're looking for a pair of quality rubber boots, be sure to check out Gumleaf USA Boots at gumleafusa.com and use the promo code TRUTH19. That'll save you some dough on some killer rubber boots. And with that, we need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, Gumleaf USA Boots, Obsession Bows, Ramcap Broadheads, Trophy Taker Rests, and Dead Down Wind. And until next time, We'll see y'all. Long term coming if it all It takes a special knowing to call a fall. Damaged heads, broken letters. Nationalize yourself in numbers. But I gotta get spread out on a tiny island that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. You want to succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.